0: We have been in a series called uh, EQ, and uh, we're in part three, and I've invited a dear friend of mine, Pastor Al Soda, to come and share, and we're going to talk about uh, going backwards in order to move forward, and he is a very dear friend of mine, and I really wanted someone that had a really messed up life, so I invited Al. uh, (laughs) Come on up here, Al. Come on up here. And uh, he's a very dear friend. You're going to really enjoy him. Help me welcome Pastor Al Soto. Never had that kind of an introduction. Never had that kind of an introduction. By the way, I, I got really emotional just because of the moment. I was really touched on Tony getting that uh, 49er jersey. And uh, I know he's going to wear that with pride. That's awesome. Well, hey, listen, it is great to be with you here this morning, and um, I do want to just take a real quick uh, moment just to say what you experienced today was history for the life of Brave Church. I, I, I don't want to overstate it or overplay it, but it's history. Um, you are entering into a new phase, a new season of life. I had the opportunity to spend one night with Pastor Darren and the elders of the church, and the, the, the men that you saw up here are godly and wise and faith-filled and believe passionately in this church. And uh, when I was up here, I just felt I just felt moved in my spirit concerning what God's doing in this church. And uh, of course, you know, I'm Uncle Al to Samuel, and he's marrying way above his pay grade with Marcy. That's all I can say. <laughs> I met Marcy, and I just said, dude, you, you just can't blow this, man. She's like, She's like, she's like sanctification to you, you know, some fancy theological thing, right? She, you, you need her, but uh, just a great young couple, and then uh, getting a chance just to meet Kara. Oh my God, what a, she's like, you're going to love Kara. And then to see the maturity of, of what Tony has sacrificed in this last season to give of his time. And then Laura, uh, I just have uh, come to respect and admire Laura on so many different levels, just what Jesus has done here, this is history. And Jesus is up to something. If you're not excited, I'll be excited for you. Is that okay? All right. Well, we're in this series, and we're going to discover that it's not possible for one who is a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Maybe I could say it this way. We are all here because we're not all there. Does that make sense? In other words, nobody's arrived, and today we're going to be on a journey together to kind of explore a simple, powerful truth that we often don't want to explore because our thinking is that when one comes to Jesus, I lived this thing. When, you know, I thought when I came to Jesus, the burdens of my heart were just going to roll away, that everything was just going to disappear, but it doesn't. And you see, we cannot separate the good, the bad, and the ugly that we've all experienced in our past And just declare to the world that, hey, I'm just kind of starting over again. How many of you have had, and I know Tony made a little funny of this, you know, for some of us who still remember what a CD is before iTunes, right? Uh, Remember when you had that CD? Could you imagine? You had that CD, and it was that special moment with that person. And, you know, Tony's probably going to experience this because he just got an Adele CD. Can you imagine that? Ah, ah, Yeah. And you're right there. And then all of a sudden you get to that special part of the song and it repeats and repeats and repeats over again because there's a scratch. Isn't that irritating? And you try to fast forward it and you can't get around it. And what happens? It's stuck and you get more and more frustrated. Well, here's the thing. There are many of us who love Jesus Christ who are involved in small groups and other activities of the church, or maybe we're just new and we're just trying to discover what this thing's all about. But we have a scratch on our soul. And that scratch on our soul keeps us stuck. And no matter what we do, it just seems to be there. It seems to be that inner feeling of abuse, abandonment, neglect, or that deep sense of the lack of self-worth. For some of us, no matter what kind of words people say to us, we continue to feel that we're a victim and we have no sense of belonging. For others of us, we simply are angry and we carry this deep sense of mistrusting everyone, especially leaders. And on our jobs, we'll sabotage any success by being adversarial or even being hypercritical toward others. Our relationships live up to the old song, you know, somebody done something wrong. You remember that song? It just becomes a repeated song now here's the challenge we oftentimes deal with all the manifestations of the symptoms such as overeating workaholism substance abuse pornography and then we're not honest because at the end of it there's a fear of rejection you see each one of us have a suitcase and we carry this suitcase around now if you know me I'm really going through withdrawals this morning. Let me tell you why. Pastor Darren and Tracy and my wife, they ganged up on me. And for all of you who've seen me, I got this roller suitcase that's my portable library. It goes everywhere with me. And because we got to go to the airport and go down to the Thousand Oaks campus a little bit later, they told me, you you got to get rid of it. And right now I'm going through severe withdrawals. The point is this. We all carry a suitcase And this suitcase has all the stuff from our family history. And if we don't allow our Heavenly Father to engage our heart, we will begin to just continue to live out the destructive patterns that come out of our family of origin and our family tree. We don't just want to deal with the symptoms, but we want to literally allow God to go to the deeper parts of our lives and deal with what's inside our suitcase. Here's the bottom line this morning. In emotionally healthy churches, people understand how their past affects their present ability to love Christ and others well. So we're going to jump into a story that's in the Bible on the story of Joseph. And his family is like a blend between the Blue Bloods and the Sopranos. They're really, really messed up. It's just a messed up family. Let's let's read this uh, uh, passage here. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. They said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? Now you gotta understand, we'll take a little pause there. His brothers were jealous of Joseph. They sold him into slavery. They put him into situations where he was abused. I mean, they just really treated this guy bad. So look what he says. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. And when their message came to him, Joseph wept. And his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. In the tradition of the day, Joseph could have very easily put them to death. He could have easily said, I'm going to sell you into slavery. Spare their lives, but have a life of misery just as they did to him. But look what he does. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Rhetorical question there. I'm not God. I'm not in that place. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid, I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. You might want to underline in your Bibles or wherever you can write it down in your note sheet or whatever, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done and the saving of many lives. Verse 20 is the summary of the whole book of Genesis. It really is the kernel of what the gospel is all about, that God can take our lives that could be messed up. That could be so much chaos and disarray. And we can encounter a grace far greater than ourselves. That integrates our hearts. That brings us to the place that everything that he does in us becomes a living message to the restoration of only what only God can do. You see... We are pre-wired by God from the moment of creation. There's a fancy word that's used in, throughout history. It's called imago Dei. It's a Latin term that says to be created in the image of God. We are created in the image of God. And being created in the image of God in this world that is, that is broken and fallen, and an adversary who hates the fact that we're created in his image, he does everything to mar that image. He does everything to put things in our suitcase, all the pain, all the stuff that, 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 that just doesn't seem to make sense. But see, we're pre-wired for something. First, God creates us with a sense of belonging. God, when he creates us, he creates us with a place that, that listen, you belong. You are the masterpiece within my creation, as Paul writes to the Ephesian church. You, you, I am the master artist, and I have created you unique. Secondly, there's the need for nurture. We're all uh, created for affection and, and to have that affirmation in our lives. We're created for support, we're created to be protected. that, That there's a protection around our lives, that we wouldn't be vulnerable or anybody would just put us in harm's way. And then there's a need for limits. Boy, this gets tested, especially when you become the parent of teenagers. Because when they're younger, they'll comply. Then all of a sudden, will kicks in. Their cognitive, their intellectual development gets to the place that all of a sudden, and I've experienced this, and by the way, for those on the other side of the teenage years, there is life. You do get there. You do get to hear these words. Dad, you really do know what you're talking about. You really do get there. But man, when they get through those years, they look at you and they say, man, dad, you know what? We're in a different age. Don't you understand? That's passe. Everything that you experience doesn't even matter. And you're just kind of sitting there going, oh, really? Yeah, you're right. I was hatched from an egg. I was there years ago. We didn't have electricity. You're right. You're right. But, but, but you see, we as parents and as people have been created with limits. And those limits are we can't do everything. We can't be everything. There is health. But what happens is there's a distortion that enters in. And that distortion begins to fray our perception of ourselves, but mainly of God and who we are in relationship to God. And then we live life. And for some of us, can we be dishonest? There is no such thing as the perfect family. There's no such thing as the perfect family system. There are elements of brokenness in every family. Family. And the reason why that's important to 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 really discuss that is because we can live under this mythos, this this unreality, this lie that kind of gets us convinced that, well, you know what? I'm the only person, my, my problems must be unique. Nobody else in, in, in the church or the body of Christ can really relate to me because, quite frankly, what I've experienced is really, really unique. And here's the thing: that's not true. That's not true. There is nothing that I have experienced in my life that somebody else hasn't already experienced. It is a common thing of pain and brokenness, and that's the reason why the gospel is so powerful, because for many of us, it is that moment that we need to begin to recognize what it means for God to be Father. Now, I'm going to show you a video clip here in a minute, because I want to jump in and use this as a... Basis of sharing maybe a little bit of my story, but also unpacking some things. How many of you remember the show, the Fresh Prince of Bel Air? Remember that? One of my favorite shows. Remember that, man? You remember the theme song? That used to be that show. I love that, man. This is this is a, a great, great show. Well, here's what happened. He was a street smart, this is Will Smith, he was a street smart teenager from West Philadelphia who's sent to move in with his wealthy aunt and uncle in a, who live in a Bel Air mansion. He's, basically what happens is he's in this whole new culture. He has this extended family and he hasn't seen his father for like 14 years. All of a sudden dad comes back on the scene. Now I'm going to say this, there's a little bit of language with this clip. There's a little bit, I'm preparing you for that, okay? I know you live in the Bay Area and you're really sheltered. But but I want you to know there's just a little bit of of language, but I want you to catch the pathos, the passion of what's happening in this moment as dad is beginning to walk out on him again. Watch this clip. You a better man than me? You happy?
1: Now, you're going to tell Will or not, I'm not going to do your dirty work for you. Fine. Uh, I'll call him from the road. Yeah, then why don't you do that? Yeah, I'll do that. Daddy, out. What's up? Well, <laughs> I'm glad you're here. Um, some business came up I got to handle, so we're gonna have to put our our trip on hold. You understand? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's cool. That's cool. J- just for a couple of weeks. Mm, I understand. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Maybe a little longer, yeah, whatever, whatever look i'll I'll call you next week and we'll iron out the details, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, yeah. It was great seeing you, son. you too, Lou yeah, yeah um.
0: I'm sorry, Will.
1: You know what? Actually, this works out better for me. You know, the slimmies as summer come to class wearing next to nothing. You know what I'm Will, saying?
0: Well, it's all right to be angry.
1: Hey, why should I be mad? I'm saying, at least he said goodbye this time. I just wish I hadn't wasted my money buying this stupid present. I- I'm sorry. I, you know, if there was... Something that I Hey, you do. know what? You ain't got to do no nothing, Uncle Phil. Hey, you know, ain't like I'm still five years old, you know? Ain't like I'm gonna be sitting up every night asking my mom, when's daddy coming home, you know? Who needs him? Hey, he wasn't there to teach me how to shoot my first basket, but I learned, didn't I? Hey, I got pretty damn good attitude, didn't I, yeah, Uncle Phil? You did? Got through my first day without him, right? Mm. I learned how to drive, I learned how to shave, I learned how to fight without him. I had 14 great birthdays without him. He never even sent me a damn card. Down with him! I ain't need him then, and I don't need him now. Will. Now, you know what, Uncle Phil? I'm going to get through college without him. I'm going to get a great job without him. I'm going to marry me a beautiful honey, and I'm going to have me a whole bunch of kids. I'm going to be a better father than he ever was. And I sure as hell don't need him for that, because ain't a damn thing he could ever teach me about how to love my kids. How come he don't want me, man?
0: Many of this, as we look at this clip, it's just like yesterday. You can identify with this because you've lived these moments. Whether it be with a father, a mother, a family member, a friend. Why don't I belong? And the whole thing that Joseph says that in life, God recycles everything and restores... And He does it in such a way that He wants to be our Heavenly Father. And there are three quick points, and I'm going to move very quickly, but I just want to identify with you what we need to do with our suitcase. First, look into your suitcase because it frees you from your path. For many of us, this moment are the assumptive faith moments that we live by assumption. Let me tell you what assumptive faith does. Let me kind of give you this little bit of an illustration. You and I are in a truck. We're driving in front of, a, of an elementary school, and there's lots of kids. And while we're driving, all of a sudden we hit and run over something. Two miles down the road, we look at each other, and we go, you, you don't think we ran over a child, do you? Uh, boy, I don't, I don't, I hope not. Do you think we should go back? Nah, nah, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. So we just keep driving down the road. All of a sudden, we keep on thinking in our minds. Did we run over a child? What did we run over? There was lots of kids out in front of the schoolyard, but we never took the time to go back. So now this anxiety becomes a fear, and we begin to hide in the tyranny of this fear because we never went back to look to see what, 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 what happened. And so many of us live our lives with that kind of a of faith of things that take place, but we never go back to take a look so we blame ourselves. We continue to carry the shame. We continue to go, I am the problem. Rather than get back in the truck and we go down two miles and we look at each other and we go, why don't we go back and look at what we ran over? And we go back and what we discover is there's a big log in the middle of the road and all of a sudden we go, oh, thank God. And we don't have to co- try to create all these coping mechanisms and everything else to, because we went back and we looked into the reality of the situation. I grew up in a family, Puerto Rican, Italian, French. I used to tell people we went everything from souffle to au My grandmother was black Puerto Rican. Four generations of alcoholism on both sides of the family. My father was a, was a, was a, was a coach, a football coach, very popular he was also a very angry man. He grew up that way, very physically abusive. There was many times I would come home from school, and Dad would be trying to physically go after Mom, and I was trying to say, Dad, please don't do this. Please don't do this. Or my father at times, because we joke about it, and some of you can relate to this, those times when we used to get beat with everything, Matter of fact, we knew that my grandmother had kung fu skills because she could throw construction boots 40 yards and those boots would go around the fence and hit you in the back. But with my dad, it was never just discipline. It was beatings. And it wasn't until later in life, because I used to think to myself as I lay in my room, and so why does my dad want to hit us like this? Why does he want to beat us like this? I used to think maybe it's us. And I remember times, because we'd play sports, that he would say, you can't go to school today. And it wasn't until later on in life I finally figured out we didn't go to school because he didn't want anyone to see the bruises and the swelling on our legs. Yeah, that's the kind of life I grew up with. My dad came coach of the year, and in 1975 of this month, his name was gonna be announced, but we noticed something different happened. Dad started reading the Bible and started praying, and he was completely different. Because he went to this meeting with my grandparents, and he gave his heart to Christ. We, we didn't know that at the time. I just know that dad was weird. He's not drinking, and he's not angry anymore. And it was the last words that I heard my father say is when he was going up to get his award. Talk about a Hallmark movie. He goes down and hits the ground because an aneurysm hemorrhages in his brain. And he grabs me, and he looks up at me, and he says, I love you, son. And then went into the fog of a coma for a week where he passed on. My family went into utter chaos after that. My parents and my my, my mom, my grandparents, they all came to Christ. I was angry. And at age 15, I made the choice when I came home from school one day that I saw my stepdad was disciplining my brother. I knew better that I didn't want to disrespect my mom that I said, I'm out of here. And at age 15, lived in the back of a truck and decided I was going to bail from life and hang out along the coast of California. That's where I became an herbologist, if you know what I mean. <laughs> you see, it was right at that time that something kicked in generationally. You see, my, my grandfather on my mother's side, who's a genius engineer, who, who developed the gyroscope, uh, that, that, that's the guidance package, the celestial navigation for the Polaris A-1 missile. I'm sitting on a, new year, on a Christmas Eve in his house, and we started drinking hard liquor shots together, and he said the words that just spoke right into my soul as a man. He said, you know how to handle your liquor. And it was game on. I drank and drank and drank. And then I came to Christ after that, and God restored my relationship with my my mom and everyone else, but the problem is there was still a ghost. And the ghost is, God, I love you and I trust you so much, but I got all these unresolved things with Dad that's still there. And then I married this beautiful lady I mean, my God, two different worlds. She grew up in the church. I got a big afro, platform shoes, angel flight pants. They're sneaking me in the bars. Yeah, take that as a picture. Boy, that was something else. You didn't know whether to shake my hand or put a present under my feet. But here I am. I I, I met her, and two years into it, I start drinking again. I start drinking again. In the second year, after I had an angry fit of a drunken stage and had thrown furniture from the second story of a building, not even remembering it, she looks at me and says, man, I don't know if I can live this way. And I made the first steps and the decisions in my life. I got to get some help. And that's where a friend of mine says, hey, I want to take you to a meeting. I said, what kind of a meeting? Because he knew me. I was a prideful guy. I thought alcoholics and drunks were people that were in front of a 7-Eleven with a brown bag. I wore an Amarni suit every day. I'm an intellectual. I can't be an alcoholic. He goes, Let's, we're going to go to Santa Teresa, and there's a guy, they're, 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 they're Christian guys. But, but he says, just go to this meeting. And I don't know why, back in the day, they put all these recovery meetings and everything in the basement someplace. But I go to Santa Teresa Community Hospital and I sit there for the first time in my life. By the way, this was after I went to my pastor and confessed to him I had a drinking problem and he said, Al, you're so messed up I don't know what to do with you. He says, I don't know what to do with you. You're a mess. I go, yes, and? I knew that. But here I sat for the first time with guys who were lawyers and doctors and professionals and they're confessing there are issues of drinking and alcohol. And I said, you know what, Jesus? Maybe, just maybe, just for a guy like me, just if I, if I just surrender this thing, you can, let, you can free me from this. And it was on that day in 1984 that I stopped drinking. And it'll be February 27th of this month, I'll celebrate 32 years of sobriety. But you know what's so funny about the church? Man, we get all weird about stuff. For years, I get people coming up to me going, Hey, Al, you've been preaching and you've been to seminary and all this kind of stuff. Do you still go do meetings? Do you still? You don't need those meetings anymore. Somehow it's like you get Jesus and all of a sudden you just go, (laughs) Hi, I'm a weirdo Christian. I'm one of those people you don't want at a potluck. You know what I'm talking about. Everything looks good on the outside, but on the inside, yeah, I do still do meetings. Because you know what I found out? God recycles everything. That since that time, there's been hundreds of young people I've been able to come alongside and share my story and be a surrogate father to, to say, there is a heavenly father. And he places the lonely into families. He uses everything. That's what happened to Joseph. Joseph comes to this place and he realizes... Listen, I don't have to play God. I don't have to in any way judge you or violate or get angry or retaliate. But I simply, all I have to do is take what God has done in me and love you. See, we all know that from our family systems. We all we've all been there, which leads us to the second point, develop practices that help exchange what's in your suitcase and gives you hope in your present life. Isaiah says this in 55.8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. The Hebrew uh, word for ways is a frequented path. In other words, take the ways, the boundaries that you walk in, and walk in them differently. Take justice out of your hands and put it back on the cross. Allow yourself to receive forgiveness. And there are some of you who are listening to my voice. There is a father, there's a mother, there's been injustice, there's been abuse, there's been places where you've been mistreated, and you want justice on your terms. And I'm here to tell you, the moment you place justice back on the cross, this thing called grace works. It works. I'm not saying you have to approve of everything that that, that whatever the person that did you did. I'm not saying it's not about approval, but it's about the acceptance of the fact that I don't have to place justice in my hands. Here's a verse that I really love, Malachi 4, 6. God is talking to not only the biological parents, but he's talking to the elders of Israel. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, the hearts of the children to the parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. What is he talking about? First, you need to know this. God's talking to dads first because it's easier for a father to reject a son than a son to reject a father. God knew family systems theory. He created it. And he says, Dads, have your hearts turn. And how do you have your hearts turn? Can I just take a moment? This isn't in an info commercial. I want you to hear the passion of this. You know what moves me? What moves me is a Samuel and a Marcy saying I do to children's ministry. Let me give you some statistics you need to be aware about the youth. In the U.S., 397,122 children are living without permanent families in the foster care system right now, today. In 2012, 23,396 youth aged out of the U.S. foster care system. These are kids that get into the system. They stay in the system, never get into some type of a nuclear family environment. Nearly 40% have been homeless or couch surfed where they stay with a friend or they just live on a couch someplace. Nearly 60% of young men have been convicted of a crime. 75% of women and 33% of men receive government benefits to meet basic needs. Nearly 40% have been homeless or, count. you know, we've already covered that, but 50% of all youth who aged out were involved in substance abuse. Now, I want you to take take that. Right now, today, if you take current statistics, they they very well say that, over 50% of the population deal with some type of addiction. And out of that 50%, more likely 60, well over 60% are dealing with some type of substance abuse. I want you to think of that stat for a minute. 70% of the females were pregnant prior to age 18. You live in one of the richest valleys There is affluence here, but affluence does not set the stage for a moral condition to get better or healthier. Matter of fact, you're looking at a coach who mainly did both, I did very affluent schools that I coached at, and I did very, very at-risk schools. And I will tell you this, in the middle of affluence, I have seen all kinds of brokenness with students, and on my Facebook page, I still have players that connect with me and say, Coach, you remember that moment? it saved my life. And you are launching off a ministry with both Samuel and Marcy today, set that foundation with Tony, who set it in the previous season. And then we got Carol, who's moving into kids ministry. Listen, boy, it is rich. You go after these kids in this valley. And you see this place filled with hundreds of kids. You begin to see children minister to, where we're no longer doing preventative things, but we're going after it to see lives changed. And I'm gonna tell you something, brave church. You're gonna be on the precipice of something that God is doing in this valley that's bigger than you. And you may say, man, I I don't know if I could talk to kids. You know what, give it a shot. All they wanna do is hear your story. A 70-year-old man by Glenn Long, Glenn Long was in our church in San Jose for years. He said, I can't teach youth, I can't teach kids, but I can tell them my story. And that you know what? Those kids would come into the church and they would say, that's Grandpa Glenn. Because Grandpa Glenn would tell his story of how Jesus reformed his life. And they appreciated that we need storytellers. We need people to come alongside these areas of ministry and say, we're willing to go after it. Why? Because we're breaking cycles generational cycles of sin here's the last point be generous and begin to share the new things in your suitcase and this will bring freedom for generations to come the church i don't have time to go through a whole geniogram but if you look at your geniogram and that's your family history and joseph had a messed up one and i told you a little bit about mine sin is generational But blessings are also generational. And I'm here to tell you, you might be the person that's the first person that takes a stand in your life that says, I'm standing in grace and I'm gonna break the cycle of brokenness in my family. My kids have never seen their dad drunk. I'm the first generation to graduate with a high school diploma because most of my family have done prison time. Most of my cousins have been in San Quentin. Every time I do a funeral for a family member, the question isn't, did you go to school? Are you in or out? And how many times are you in and out? But we made a decision by the grace of God that we're gonna take a stand in our generation. And I wanna talk and close with this final story with you, and it's my grandfather, Victor Soto. My grandfather came to Christ at 60. He was a wealthy man with a sixth grade education who started businesses and then he took his resources and he began to 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 pour his resources into missions matter of fact i didn't even know how much he did until i did his funeral and the day that i did his funeral I, i i found out that he took thousands of dollars and extradited pastors out of cuban prisons to come here that he had helped people with medical issues it was absolutely overwhelming But let me tell you what my grandfather did for me first eight years of my life through elementary school. And it's the point that that it changed my life. Every morning, we'd, we'd spend time with my grandfather, and he would tell us his story. And before we would go to school, he would meet us at the door, and he'd hug us, and he'd look us in the eye, and he'd go like this. He goes, hey, Al, Albert, look me in the eye. He'd go, Mio, Mio, who loves you? I said, You do, Grandpa. Who believes in you? I said, You do, Grandpa. Who believes that you have a future, a God given future that God's given you? I said, You do, Gramps. And when we're little kids, we'd go, We have to do this again today. We have to do it. He did it every day day, every day before we left the house, he'd look us in the eyes, and I want you to fast forward, the love of my life, great, I don't know how many of you, how many of you are grandparents, oh, thank God, I love being a grandpa, and little Josiah, before he leaves the house, come on over here, Josiah, he says, you're going to say that thing to me, aren't you, Papa?" We're going to say it, to, we're going to say it, yeah. And he goes, okay. Who loves you? You do, Papa. Who believes in you? You do, Papa. Who thinks you have a destiny that God's given you? You do, Papa. Yeah. And when I don't do it, he says, Papa, you're forgetting something. You've got to say it to me we're breaking cycles. The other day he came up to me, catch this. Papa, I know you're going to go get a PhD. I'm going to get a PhD too. I go, why? Because I think Jesus wants me to have one. I think he does too. Here's what I want you to catch. The only reason why I could do that, the only reason why my grandfather was able to do that is when you come to the place like Joseph did, you put justice back on the cross And you begin to engage the heart of Jesus. And that you know that Jesus is not shocked by anything that's in your life. He doesn't go, oh, I'm appalled. I didn't know that happened. But that he's aware even of the number of hairs that you have on your head. That he's here and he restores. But here's the key. I have to surrender. And surrender is I'm no longer going to choose just to survive by my own coping mechanisms, but I'm going to learn a different way of living. Solitude. I'm going to begin to get in the word. I'm going to begin to have community and be reparented by people in this church. Why? Because he who created me loves me. And he says, I believe in you. I put my fingerprint on you. And you have a destiny. God bless you, brave church.